If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and to say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Friends, in today's episode, attorney Robin Miller is going to be joining us to talk about how to know when it's time to close your nonprofit. Now, we're not going to be talking about the mechanics of how to close it because, you know, that varies from state to state, but how to actually know when it's time. When should your board say, yeah, you know, we've we've run our course. We've done what we're supposed to do, and it's time for us to close. So Robin Miller has more than 30 years of corporate and tax-exempt law experience, including six years at Ernst & Young. While there, she worked in the National Tax-Exempt Organizations Group and worked with large nonprofit organizations nationwide. She has given speeches nationally on a variety of tax-exempt-related issues. She currently, and when I say currently, I'm talking like for the last 14 years, has been with Pro Bono Partnership Atlanta and serves as its senior corporate tax counsel, as well as outside general counsel to over 250 nonprofits. And I have to tell you, that is a lot of nonprofits to serve as general counsel for. Additionally, she provides corporate and tax legal advice and guidance to many of Pro Bono Partnership Atlanta's other nonprofit clients. Now, you might be asking yourself, what is Pro Bono Partnership and what is Pro Bono Partnership Atlanta? I'm sure we're going to talk about that at some point in our conversation today. Hey, Robin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dolph, for having me on. I appreciate it. So I know that like rabbis and priests and accountants and therapists, you're sworn to secrecy as a licensed attorney. So I know, I know you can't tell us the names of organizations or anything like that, but I feel pretty confident that You've got some really um, incredible scared straight stories about what's happened when organizations and boards did not actually look at those signs and say it's time to close. So why don't we start there? Like, what's what's worst case scenario? Oh, my goodness. Yes, there are those worst case scenarios, unfortunately. When a board doesn't actively pay attention to what's going on in the organization, here's the thing. A lot of boards think, you know, we, we trust. We're a nonprofit. We're going to trust that executive team to do the right thing and to 
pay attention and you could have trust, but you have to verify. And so boards really need to be actively involved, particularly in the financials of the organization. And if you're not a financial person and you're serving on a board, take some time to learn a little bit about, you know, balance sheets and income statements and cash flow statements so that you can read them properly. Because the worst thing you can do is wait until there's no money left and perhaps things haven't been paid that should have been paid. Um, particularly, one of the first things I see is an organization will start to struggle and they'll want to keep their employees all on staff because they want to keep doing the work that they're doing. Maybe they have a grant to pay for that work, um, but they really can't afford to meet their bills at the end of the month. So what do they do? They don't pay employment taxes, which is just about the worst thing you can do because every board member is potentially personally liable for those a portion of those employment taxes. And, and, and real quick, Robin, just so I make sure that we're on the same page, what you're saying essentially is the nonprofit gives their employees the net check, like what the employee normally sees, and then just does not send the money that is quote unquote taken out of that check to the, to the government, to the state or the feds, or if, there's, if you're in an area that has city tax, the city. Correct. Yes. All those employment taxes. And that's um, considered fraud because you're, the organization is the conduit to um, hold the, that money in trust for the government. Um, and so it must be remitted. And, you know, when, when an organization gets into financial trouble, the executives want to try and keep it open and going for as long as possible and often doesn't really share all that detail with the board. So the board really needs to inquire when money is tight or when they're not really sure how money's being spent, inquire and find out more detail. It's just, that's one of the biggest issues that we, we see with nonprofits. You know, we have had situations with fraud taking place where there was embezzlement by, you know, an employee of an organization too. And so, and anybody can be blindsided by that, but the more board can really be focused on and paying attention to those, the numbers, um, the better off they are. I know you said that board members can be held personally liable by the IRS. Have you have you seen board members who've had to write personal checks to the IRS? Yes. Yes, I have. And and in horrible circumstances too, where you know, they followed the the guidance of the executive director um and they signed checks um because the executive they trusted the executive director and the executive director said they should. And then they paid payroll and they didn't realize that they weren't either paying the right amount or the organization wasn't remitting the payroll taxes that go with it. So we've gone through that whole process and they've had to pay out of their own pocket. And DNO insurance doesn't cover this. I'm so glad you said that because that's always the question. Whenever I, whenever I tell people you could be personally liable, like, but we have DNO insurance. So talk about that. No, because it's it's something that falls outside of that. It's considered gross negligence. And so you can't you can't get coverage for that. So it's it becomes an individual board situation and circumstance. Board members are not liable for the entire payment, but for the employer portion or employee portion. Um, and that has to be submitted. And the IRS can go after the board members individually or jointly. So one board member could technically be responsible for all of it if the other wow. board members can't pay it. 
it gets really serious. But here's the thing, when an organization is, is thinking about shutting down or struggling, you know, board members need to have that annual meeting where they go step back and they say, where are we as an organization? How are we doing? In all aspects, not just financially, but from a business perspective. I mean, I've seen organizations achieve their mission. And then they're like, okay, well, what's next? And it's like, well, step back a minute. And should there be a next or should it be time to say, okay, with the, the rest of the money we have, we're going to give it to another organization and let them carry on with their mission so that they can meet their mission. Just because an organization exists doesn't mean that if it completes its mission, that it should take on a new mission um, or even a similar mission. Can you give an example of a mission that could be completed and then the organization says, okay, it's time for us to fold? Um, increasing literacy in a, in a small community. You know, if they're able to do that and achieve that over a 15, 20 year period where the literacy rate has gone from perhaps 40% to 80%, um, then they've achieved that mission. And so then are they going to turn to something totally different or are they going to say, okay, we've done it. And now we're going to pass on what we have left to another organization that exists to do other things, but to maintain that maybe and to be you know, on watch to make sure that those levels stay where they're at. But the programming that got to that point no longer exists. Now, it may be a significant need to continue to monitor that and to offer programming for new people that come in, and then the mission would continue. But maybe it continues at a much reduced level, or maybe it continues as a program of another organization, because operating a nonprofit is a lot of work, and it's a business. And it needs to be treated that way. So that might be the next viable solution. You know, there's another really interesting scenario that does come up, and that is organizations that are created out of the loss of a person. So oftentimes someone will die suddenly, unexpectedly, in some kind of horrible situation. The family and the friends gather and say, we want to start a foundation in that person's name and honor them and do something that they would they would do and that that's important to them and that's incredibly noble but it's a lot of work and those people are grieving at the time and over about a five to seven year period that focus changes because those that are grieving will always grieve i mean they've lost a loved one but they start to heal a bit and move on and after five years Perhaps their focus is no longer on that nonprofit. And now they've got this nonprofit out there that may be doing something, but it continues to require a lot of work. And so in some cases, it's, it's really sad when organizations come to me with that or have come to me in the past with that, because you're almost, if you suggest that they shut down, it's like saying goodbye all over again. And it's, it's heartbreaking, but some of those organizations, you know, there's somebody who's really driven and they're going to really make this a big organization that's going to do great good. You know, uh, MAD, for instance, Mothers Against Drunk Driving came out of that scenario and grew and grew and grew because there were other people that came to the table. It wasn't just that family and friends. I'd be willing to bet that for every MAD, there's probably a thousand or maybe even 10,000 Little, you know, little, little small legacy nonprofits that are, that are essentially zombies, that someone fills out the postcard every year and registers it with the state, and that's about it. 
Yeah, which is unfortunate. Um, it's a hard situation to be in. So I always try to caution people that if they're going to set up a nonprofit in the name of someone, that they really have a strong mission and a business plan for how they're going to operate this and what its goals are and where its income is going to come from and so that it has a chance at success because otherwise it's hurtful to them all over again a few years later because they have to make the decision to let it go. And that's even harder than, you know, so not than the loss of the individual, but it's, it's a continued issue. Right. Do you ever suggest to those, those types of folks that they also have an exit strategy? It's like, okay, you need a business plan and an exit strategy. So in four years or five years and you realize, oh, I have to move across the country for work and I can't run this local organization anymore. Yeah, every business plan should have a good exit strategy, um, whether it be a succession plan for the person running it or an exit strategy for the organization as a whole. Um, there should always be an exit strategy. What happens if, you know, the person who's running it wins the lottery and decides to move on? What happens next? So if I'm sitting on a board, what are some of the things I should be looking at and that would be a sign? Like, oh, we should, I know you said meet once a year, but in that meeting, what should I be looking at? What signs should I be looking for that, oh, maybe, maybe it's time for us to talk about closing or merging or something like that? Hopefully the organization has a good strategic plan and you need to really analyze deeply. Are you accomplishing those goals under that strategic plan and to what extent? And, you know, when you do that strategic plan every three to five years, do these goals make sense? Are there other organizations out there that are doing the same work and maybe doing it better or maybe, you know, doing it differently, but achieving, you know, at a higher rate more successfully than, than your organization. Um, founders of nonprofits tend to be optimists and entrepreneurs. And as entrepreneurs, they often feel like I can do this better and different. Um, but different is fine. It doesn't necessarily mean better. And so, you know, there's so many organizations out there. I was talking to a client this morning and they were talking about the work that they do. And I was telling them they needed to get comparisons for determining salary of similar organizations, you know, organizations of a similar size and a similar geography um, with a similar budget and so on. And, and they said, well, we'll have to look that up. I'm like, I can think of 10 <laughs> off the top of my head. And that to me, you know, there's, there's synergy in combining, right? You can be more effective in many cases, not always. Sometimes that little local community engagement is really important. Um, but sometimes you've got many organizations doing the same things in a crowded community. So I think that's important to look at too. Who's out there doing it and how successful are they versus you? Also looking at where is that funding coming from and how stable is it? Um, and how much more do we as a board need to engage and do to make that successful, not only funding, but also um, programming. Like, what is our role as a board in that effort? I hear from a lot of boards, oh, well, we want the organization to be self-sustaining, which is, and I'm not going to go into that whole issue with the IRS, but the IRS doesn't believe that 501c3 organizations should be self-sustaining. They should rely on donations and grants and things of that nature. And so, 
but I hear that all the time. And to me, that's partly a board saying, we don't want to fundraise. We don't want to have to be involved in that. We don't want to be responsible for that. But the board does need to engage in those activities and really pay attention and decide that they're going to commit to helping with that, knowing that that's what the organization needs. And real quick, when you say um, board members come to you and say they want to be self-sustaining, i.e. they want to build an endowment fund that just, you know, throws off enough cash or they want earned revenue? Earned revenue. Okay. Earned revenue. Because <laughs> they don't want to do the work to get the endowment. <laughs> but even if they, then if they had the endowment and they were relying just on the endowment, they would fail the public support test. So that wouldn't help them either. Um, so earned revenue. Yes, lots of earned revenue. And I agree, either of those is a tough hill to climb. But um, but the earned revenue is probably a tougher hill to climb, honestly. It's not easy. So, and again, you have to really look at what does it entail? What is the work that entails, you know, that's involved? I often find that sometimes founders are, they're very passionate people, but they're, and they're visionaries, but they're not always doers. Um, and that, then you need a doer to get the, to take that vision and make it a reality. So the board needs to really take the vision and think about it and then connect it with the dots, with the reality. The reality being, how is the programming doing? Is it working towards accomplishing the mission? What are our statistics? How are we meeting our, our outcomes measurement activities? Like what, where does that looking? Like we have to actually look at those stats and then financially all the same. Where are we? Are we meeting our goals? Are we likely to bring in the income and where do we think it's coming from? So I know you're a lawyer, but I'm going to ask you about the emotional side of this, because I would imagine that's also a little bit of an emotional conversation. And I think this is true, whether you're talking um, a legacy organization, an organization started to memorialize someone or, you know, any other nonprofit. There are people who've dedicated their time and in some ways probably even feel like their lives to it. How do all the people involved, how do they navigate that emotional side? It's hard because oftentimes you have a founder who's been there for 10 or more years and this is, you know, blood, sweat and tears. And same with some of the board members, some of a number of nonprofits, a lot of them don't have term limits. And so you'll have the same board members on. I, I was on a call this morning, 18 years, the board members have been on the board since the beginning. And, and that's noble. And they clearly care because they were on a phone call with me and, and have been dedicated and involved. And that's wonderful. But it makes it even harder when you have to make those hard decisions. You know, you have to think of it as like a child. A child grows up and they go through different stages and businesses do that too. And so, you know, you think about a small business, a family-owned business, and it starts in its first level and it grows and it, you know, starts as an infant, it becomes a toddler and then it you know grows to be a teenager and then it gets to be an adult and then the question is is there someone to succeed to take over to phase two the adult life of this entity and you know and take it to a whole nother level and if there isn't that next level that can be seen identified and paid for then it, it gets hard but so it is very emotional because it's hard, you know, just like it's hard for a parent to send off a child to college or to trade school or, you know, to be independent and on their own. It's the same with a, a nonprofit. It's interesting you say that. What it made me think about are, 
you know, in the for-profit sector, and we, we probably hear about this more in the tech sector than anywhere else, where a visionary will come up with an idea that they think is really going to disrupt a sector. And they'll get it started, and it'll start to get some traction. And then the board will go to that founder and say, if the founder does not go to the board and say this, the board will go to the founder and say, okay, I was the right person to get this started, but now we need a CEO to come in. So let's talk about what that's going to look like. Or the CEO or board are like, okay, it's 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 our exit strategy is it's now time for us to sell this to a larger organization who's going to make it everything it could be. And, you know, in the for-profit sector, like, and we're going to walk away with this wad of cash too, which, we, you know, which obviously we don't get in the nonprofit sector. That's kind of what I think I hear you saying is, okay, you know, the oftentimes a founder gets it so far, then it's bring in professional management or merge with an entity that can provide that. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's a really good point. But sometimes you do get that founder who can really has the business acumen or takes the time to learn it and to become that person. But oftentimes it's the person with the passion for the mission and they don't have the skills when the organization gets to a certain size to be that leader, to deal with the complexity of the organization. And then they also don't really want to. So they end up staying in their lane and doing the thing that they like, which can end up hurting the organization as a whole because they're not addressing the other things they need to because it's not their area of competency. Now, they can bring in, you know, other sort of C-suite people like a really good COO um, and a really good CFO there, you know, who could come in and really take on those roles and fill in those gaps. But that's a sign of a good leader. So a founder has to be willing to give up some of that, trust those people, engage them in a way to engage all of their employees as they grow and to succeed. And I would imagine that the governance level conversation, when you're trying to decide, do we continue to operate? Do we close? Do we merge? Is, you know, if we stay independent and not close, do we have the resources necessary to bring in that talent that we might need, whether it's a CFO or a COO or whatever. Absolutely. And that's a struggle because that's an expensive acquisition. So, you know, the head of HR is another one of those that's an expensive acquisition. But when you've got 30, 40 employees, you need an HR mm -hmm. director mm -hmm. and one who really knows what they're doing. Um, and a PEO isn't going to suffice for that. You really need that person on the ground who's addressing those issues when you have that many employees. Similar situation. And, and I will say, understandably, and at some level, this is good governance, and I get this, boards can be risk averse. Boards, you know, boards will sometimes say, oh, that COO, oh my gosh, you know, that that's more than our executive director made three years ago. How could we, how could we spend that money? So sometimes boards can even be a little risk averse about this. Oh yeah, absolutely. You always have to look at the risk, risk tolerance of the board and of the organization's founder or leaders to understand where they are. But from a financial perspective, it is a risk because oftentimes it means raising this additional funds and adding to your, and then continuing. Like maybe you get initially a grant to add that person, but then you, the board has to make sure that money is there year in and year out. That's that risk. But you have to, if you're carefully tracking your funds, an organization should have six months, if possible, six months in reserve of operating expenses. And so that gives them that cushion to try this, go after it. And if they don't have the funding, they can dip into that, but then they need a plan and they need to be aware that they're not meeting those goals. And that goes back to my initial point is that it's really important to stay on top of those finances and to have those conversations 
um, and to understand what you're looking at. Yeah. So this has been really incredibly helpful because, I mean, it does sound like what we're talking about is boards at least once a year having kind of a a meeting where they check in and they say, okay, do we continue as an independent organization? And, you know, let's look at finances. Let, let's look at programs. Let's look at leadership. Do we have all the pieces we need in order to continue as a successful organization? Or should we look at some sort of either spin over to another organization or a ramp down? Yeah, absolutely. Now, there's some organizations that that might be a 15-minute conversation yep. because the boards are so clear, the activities are so clear. It's very obvious that this is a very successful organization. But what it does is it gives you a moment to step back and be intentional and thoughtful as a board about, well, is there anything we haven't considered, anything we need to really step back and think about? Yeah, we've got this strategic plan, but as we all know, in the last few years, life changes constantly and it can change on a dime. And so there may be something that they need to reconsider. For a lot of small nonprofits, these conversations are much more complex than that 15 minutes. Um, and whether it's at a board retreat or what have you, it should be something that is considered and it should be all aspects like you mentioned. Those were great. That was a great list. And I would also think that when an organization is between Exec, chief executives, that's also probably a really good time to start to have that conversation of, hey, you know, should we merge? Should we close? Because you don't, you don't have someone, quote unquote, at the top who's, who's vested in like, I, you know, I lead this organization and I spent years of my life building it. And it gives you that more of that open space. You know, that's a really good point because one of the biggest issues in potential mergers is that you've got two executives and who's going to continue to lead the combined entity. Um, so if you don't have that executive director for whatever reason, that is a good time to think about, is that the best strategy? Because um, it's a unique circumstance. And I'll share with you, you know, Robin, I do a lot of interim executive director engagements and probably at least half of them, they did consider whether or not to merge. I mean, to the extent of like, literally like taking a field trip and, you know, let's go look at this organization let's have a conversation. And ultimately they decided to remain independent, but I thought it was really healthy that they, that they were like, yeah, let's look at this. Maybe this is the right time. Yeah. But I also caution people because they, they want to merge when they're like flailing and you can't, no one, you know, there aren't that many white knights. So you can't, you can't think that someone's going to acquire you or merge with you when you have, when your finances are in disarray or your programming is in disarray. You have to be something that's interesting to them and worth it to them. And it may be that there is the rare occasion where they just want your clients or they just want this or that. Just want your building, right. Right. But most of the time, they're not going to be interested if you are in debt, if your programming is in disarray. And, and things of that nature. Robin, one of my mantras, because I, I also say this to organizations a lot, two drowning people can't save themselves. <laughs> That's right. You know, it's like, That's it's so like you know, and I, and I say this to someone who does not know how to swim. So it's like, you know, like if someone is drowning even 20 feet from shore, I know I'm not the person to jump in and try to save them because we're both going to drown. No, it's very, very true. Yes. And even if the other one is quite successful, they have no interest necessarily in something that's drowning. Well, Robin, this has been so incredibly helpful. Thank you. And, you know, we've got this off the map question, and I'm really excited about this one. This is a good one. Tell me about your destination wedding. Oh, my goodness. So um, for a lot of various different reasons, my husband and I decided to sort of do a planned elopement 
and we were, were big hikers and we decided we were living in Virginia at the time and we didn't want to get married in Virginia or anywhere nearby. Um, and so a friend of mine recommended the White Mountains in New Hampshire. And so we ended up contacting the White Mountain National Forest and asking them for a really good hike um, that wouldn't be, that would have beautiful views, but wouldn't be so strenuous that we would be completely exhausted on the hike. Um, and we could bring a few people along and, and get married on top of the mountain. And so that's what we did. And so we found a minister through our church national organization who um, went with us. And he had actually married some people on skis the year before. So he was all excited about this. And uh, we met in the parking lot where the hike started and the trail started. And what was really interesting is a friend of mine is a travel writer. And a month before he had done the hike, and we told him we were doing it. And we're actually in his book <laughs> about, no travel, about hikes. Um, yeah, in New England um, and uh, our adventures in New England uh, for traveling. And so we hiked over a couple mountains and um, and along at the top of the first mountain, we got married and then went to the second mountain and broke some bread and had some drink and, you know, water <laughs> and then um, hiked down. Um, and then we all went to dinner um, at we stayed at the um, Mount Washington Hotel. We all had dinner in the main dining room. So how many people, like you said a few, like, are you talking eight? Or are you talking 30? Oh, no, no, no. Less than eight. It was my husband, myself, um, his brother, my sister, and the minister. Oh, and then my cousin, who happened to be a photographer for National Geographic, and his girlfriend. So we have the most amazing, beautiful pictures. <laughs> and it was a beautiful, beautiful, sunny September day. It, we couldn't have asked for better weather. Um, so we got really lucky. And and so again, I'm, I'm sorry. I know I'm really diving deep on this, but I have so many questions. So like, I'm assuming you're like, you're wearing standard hiking clothes. Like, you know, like, like your husband's not in a tux, you're not in a wedding dress. Did, did you, did you pack anything? Like, did he pack a bow tie? Did you pack a veil? Did you pack anything like that? Yeah, actually. So my cousin, when we met with him, so in, in New Hampshire, you have, there's a waiting period to get married. So, um, you have to apply and then you have to wait five I think five days to get married. So we decided we flew in for a long weekend and then we went back and then we came back a month later and got married because your license is good for a long period of time. So um, so we met with my cousin who lived, who has a house in New Hampshire. And he said, well, what are you wearing? And we said, well, shorts and hiking boots. And he said, no, a wedding is a ceremony and you need to have ceremonial clothing of some sort. He goes, it's very important. There's a reason that every ceremony in every religion throughout history, and not even just religions, but, but culture, has ceremonial dress. And so we thought about it. And so we did exactly what you just said. My husband brought a bow tie and a jacket. Um, and then I um, was wearing a white sweater, and I had a wreath of white flowers. And the minister packed, and we told him what we were doing, but we didn't ask him to do anything. Well, he got into full Sunday clothes. He had this backpack and no. he couldn't figure out what was in it. He got into full Sunday clothes. So the pictures are just stunning from the waist up. Wow. That is that is really, really cool. And it, it did make a difference. Yeah. I and I could see that. I I mean I, I think your your cousin was really wise to be like, oh no, you have to make this special. Yeah. This can't just be a hike and you know, in the middle of it you get married. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That that's awesome. Well, 
Robin, thank you so much. Thank you for coming on. And also thank you for sharing about your wedding. Um, oh my gosh. Um, I feel like I, and I already feel like I know you pretty well, but I feel like I know you so much better now. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> and listeners, let me just share with you a little bit and actually Robin might as well um, about Pro Bono Partnership Atlanta. So Pro Bono Partnership Atlanta is an incredible organization. Um, there are a lot of pro bono partnership organizations all over the country. So there might be one in your city or your metro area. And, and essentially they they work with small and medium-sized nonprofits and and both provide legal counsel, but also broker pro bono services from, you know, attorneys at, at large firms and attorneys at small and medium-sized firms. And it almost allows small and medium-sized organizations to get almost any legal need met they might need to have met. So, you know, that includes things like, um, oh, we need a new employment manual or, oh, by the way, you know, we didn't pay our payroll taxes and we're having an issue with the IRS and everything in between. So I, I'm remiss if I don't say something about Pro Bono Partnership Atlanta. Robin, anything to add about what you all do? Yeah. So, you know, our volunteers, we have about 3,000 volunteer attorneys and they come from all of the major corporations in Atlanta, as well as law firms. You know, it's hard for business lawyers to do pro bono work because they don't want to go into court and serve individuals. So we provide the opportunity for them to serve small nonprofits. In our case, they have to serve low-income or disadvantaged individuals. Um, and, and they can do it right in their area of expertise. So if they're a real estate attorney, they can help review a lease. If they're a privacy attorney, they can advise on privacy issues or contracts or corporate or tax or employment or every other issue you can think of. Um, and in addition to there being a few other pro bono partnerships around the country, we also are a participant in an organization or a network called Exponentum. And on our website, we have a link to all of the Exponentum entities so that are throughout the United States that might not be a pro bono partnership, but they do a similar kind of work. We all do it a little differently, but they all serve nonprofit organizations. Um, and it's a great, great group of organizations that are out there trying to help nonprofits succeed. Thank you, Robin. And I did not know about Exponentum, so I'm going to have to go check them out. Thank you. And we'll, we'll also link to that in our show notes. I had no idea about Exponentum. Thank you. So listeners, Robin mentioned the website. Here's the URL pbpatl.org. That's pbpatl.org. And there you can find out more about Pro Bono Partnership Atlanta. Obviously, you can get the link to Exponentum, but they also have an incredible learning center where they have podcasts, they have um, papers, like, you know, just like, 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 so like white papers to kind of explain how to do things. It is often more Georgia-based, but if you've got a national issue that deals with federal law and you're not in Georgia, you might want to go there as well. It's pbpatl.org. Robin, thank you again for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. And friends, always remember, you can go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com. And in the show notes, we're going to link to Pro Bono Partnership Atlanta. We're going to link to Exponentum. Um, I might even be able to convince Robin, she, you know, we may have to edit this out. I don't know, but I might be able to convince Robin to share one of her wedding photos um, on the top <laughs> of the mountain. <laughs> that would be awesome. So you might even go to the show notes for that as well. And if you liked this episode, if it helped you think through how you as a board or you as a staff leader in your organization can better help guide your organization through some maybe difficult decisions. There are two other episodes I really think you should check out. One is episode 207, 
working with pro bono attorneys. And Michelle Johnson and Pro Bono Partnership Atlanta's Executive Director, Rachel Spears, joined us for that episode. The other is episode 190 with Bruce Hopkins, the three legal duties of all nonprofit board members. I I talk about these three legal duties all the time. Bruce does a great job of laying them out. Uh, so if you're looking for ways that you as a board can make sure that you are fulfilling those three duties, that that is a really good episode to listen to as well. And that, listeners, is our show for the week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And it's ironic that I'm about to say this because I don't really love saying it, but the lawyers make me say it. I'm not an accountant nor an attorney. I say it every episode, and neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Please, please, for all things sacred, do not get tax, legal, or accounting advice from a podcast or a magazine or probably even the internet. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to find a licensed, qualified professional in your area that specializes in exactly the issue that you are having and have that conversation. If you are not sure what type of professional, you can reach out to me. I can help you figure it out. And if you don't know of anyone in your area, I'm often surprised. Someone recently reached out to me and said, hey, Dolph, can you recommend a pro bono attorney in Phoenix? And I was able to. So, you know, I'm often surprised. Sometimes I can even suggest someone for you to contact. 